now listening to Grace City Portland. All right. Um, guys, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it now or turn it on. We have a few Bibles in the aisleway here. You're very welcome to grab one of those. And then we'll have uh, at least a portion of the text on the screen here as well. This will be the final uh, part of a teaching series that we've been working through over the last couple of months. This is week seven. We've had a couple of breaks um, along the way. But we're going we're gonna to land today. Someone asked me last week, are we almost there yet? Um, yes, yes, sort of speak. We are, we are arriving. Uh, we're, this will not be heaven. I, Jesus might come back this morning, but we have arrived at the end of our teaching series as we looked through God's people's uh, wanderings, journey, challenges, ups and downs through the wilderness as God led his people out of deliverance to their destiny, as it were, in the promised land. And uh, that's what we've been, we've been looking. We've been looking at that journey. We've been highlighting certain elements of that and then simply asking ourselves the question, well, what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? How does this translate for us in, in our contemporary context? Um, and it's a good thing to do because, in fact, in the New Testament, it's exactly what we, we see the New Testament writers doing, appealing to this journey the series of stories through the wilderness, as it were, to inform us as to how we're to navigate the tensions as we follow Jesus in our contemporary context. Um, this is actually the, the, the chart, if you will, the little illustration that we, we started from. Um, began by being delivered, God's people were delivered out of slavery in Egypt. Okay, that was death. Um, and then they crossed over the Red Sea, they passed through the wild, they got to the mountain, they received the law. That went terribly bad. Um, from there, God continued to lead them through a new wilderness on the other side of Mount Sinai. And this morning, we are arriving here. Uh, after their incident at Mount Sinai, they end up leaving. They travel for about 11 days into the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea. And there, God says, right, it's time. You're ready. I'm going to lead you into the land that I had promised your forefathers. That is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. And, uh, and this, is, this is where we're going to pick up. So um, if you have a Bible, we're actually not in Exodus this morning. We're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 1. Um, and we see this story told in Deuteronomy 1 as well as, as, well as in Numbers 13 and 14. Um, but we're going to look at the version as it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Here we go. Chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near to me and said, 
Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. The things seem good to me. And I I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe, and they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. Verse 25. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought, brought us word again and said, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord has hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. Verse 34 We're going to go all the way to verse 40. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord Even with me, the Lord was angry. This is Moses speaking. Even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. As for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they're innocent, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. In other words, go back, go home, straight to jail, do not collect 200. What a tragic story. Fatherhood, uh, marriage, ministry buying a home, moving to Portland. Some of the most challenging journeys uh, that I've, I've had in life, as hard as they were, could not have ever have prepared me for the giants that awaited when I finally arrived. This is that story. Have you ever hoped and prayed and, and envisioned and worked and fought and, and trying to, to trust the Lord to get from point A to B, only to finally arrive at point B and discover, oh my goodness, I thought the journey was hard. That was nothing compared to the giants, the proverbial giants 
that I'm now facing in the land that God has promised me. I remember I used to, uh, for a number of years, uh, long after I thought I would have been married, I used to think, I want to be a dad someday. Maybe, depending upon the day, even more than I had like longed to, to meet someone and, and, and fall in love, I thought, man, I'd really love to be a dad someday. And um, I remember just dreaming about that and, and, and thinking, oh, it'll just be so wonderful and someday. And, and it was a long, hard journey. It was a long, hard wait. A lot, of, a lot of turbulence there. And then finally it happened. I met the woman of my dreams, my lovely wife, Shirley. Took me going all the way to another continent to find my wonderful South African wife. And we got married, and I quickly began to uh, convince her that we needed to have kids like sooner than later. This was, she's shaking her head, a lot of turmoil there. I finally wore her down. And uh, I mean, God worked on her heart. And, uh, and so then we, we finally had kids. We had our first one, little Isaac, and then Evie and Judah. And I'll tell you something. I thought, I thought waiting was hard. I thought, I thought just the, the emotional sort of holding on, believing, keeping the vision alive someday. Maybe God will bless me and I'll be a dad and now I'm a dad and I'm like, oh my goodness, nothing could have prepared me. There's nothing harder. And the parents are laughing with a slightly like delirious, like it's funny but not funny sort of laughter. Yeah. This, this is the story. This, this is the journey that God calls us on. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're like, look, I've, I've not decided if I want to put my faith in Jesus, and therefore I've not necessarily started following him, as it were. Um, okay, fair enough. But if you have done that, um, and, and you, you have found yourself coming to moments of faith feeling slightly disillusioned, like why is this so hard? Um, I just have to be honest with you. It's, it's probably nothing in comparison to how hard it's going to be when you finally arrive in the promised land. It's just, it's just hard. This is, this is the journey of following Jesus. Now you're like, hey, that's not encouraging. It'll get encouraging. Um, so what's, what's going on here? Let's, let's unpack this. Um, a few, a few uh, initial thoughts. Number one, what, what is their problem? What is not their problem? Their problem is not that there are giants in the land. Our problem in life, wherever you're coming from, is not that like, life is full of challenges and difficulties and obstacles. That's, that's, that's not anyone's problem, really, because that's just called being alive. And God never promised that there wouldn't be giants that his people had to face along the way. He never said that. He never said, once you get there, it'll just be like, it'll be, it'll be bliss. It'll be perfect. It'll be wonderful. I'll meet you there. All the giants will be dead when you arrive. And you'll just, all you have to do is just like walk into the promised land. He never said that. So their problem isn't that there were giants. Their problem isn't even that there are like giant giants. Um, they, just, they, they said, but there are the Anakim there, the sons of the Anak. Or if you read the Numbers 13, 14 version, they refer to them as descendants of the Nephilim. You guys know about the Nephilim? You guys know about the, Okay, don't do this now. But if you want to like just dive deep into to internet weirdness, Google Nephilim. And you'll, you'll, there's some interesting stuff on there. Now this is a reference to Genesis 6, where, and it's, it's very obscure. 
it's slightly weird, very intriguing, but there was a time in ancient days when it says that fallen angels, demons, ended up having sexual relationships with human females, and their offspring were these like, it would seem like they were on these like demigod giants, like demonic sort of like half human, half fallen angel. I know it's, it's, it's weird, all right? It's weird, it's Genesis 6. Do yourself a favor, probably don't Google it because it's like the, the level of weirdness out there is just, it's just mind blowing. But they're giants. So these aren't just like giants. These are Nephilim giants. But that's not their problem. Their problem isn't even that, that they weren't like actually equipped for the battle. This, this is interesting. Um, when they left Egypt, if you go back to Exodus 13, all the way back to the Red Sea, it says this. Let me read this to you. Exodus 13, 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. You know, they left Egypt armed somehow. I reckon they, they, they got it from the, the Egyptians. It said when they left, that God gave them favor. Whatever they asked the Egyptians for, they gave to them. So they left equipped for battle. So their problem was that they didn't have tools, they didn't have weapons, they weren't, they weren't equipped to defend themselves. None of that was the problem. The problem, it would seem, was that when they finally arrived here, and God said, right, it's time. Go up into the land that I promised you, that I promised your fathers. And he says, don't, don't be afraid. Don't dread them. Remember, I am the God who fights for you. And in the same way that I led you out of an impossible situation, I will lead you in to an impossible situation, into the ultimate place in which I promised you. And their problem was that they refused to believe, or they just were unable to remember to believe, that the same God who delivered them out of the impossible is the same God who was going to deliver them into their destiny, which was equally as impossible. That was their problem. This is a picture of our journey of salvation from impossible to impossible. This is what Romans says that when talking about the gospel and our righteousness in Christ, that it's, it's, we, we are saved by faith for faith, because of faith into faith. And um, this is what New Testament-wise, uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to the Galatians. Guys, this is so relevant. Let me read this to you, and then I'll read you the message translation as well, or the, the message paraphrasing. It's another translation of the Bible. Galatians 3 Verses two and three, it says, did you receive the spirit by works or by faith? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh or by works in your own right? And I love how the message translation paraphrases this. It says, let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete 
by their own efforts what was begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin with, how do you suppose you could perfect it now? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but certainly will be if you keep this up. This is our story. We begin by the Spirit of God doing something within us that none of us could ever do for ourselves. You can't be smart enough, you can't be strong enough, you cannot be religious enough or spiritual enough because on the inside of us, every human being is broken. We're all culpable in this sinful, broken world. We've all sinned. We've all been sinned against. We've been born into a system that's cursed, if you will. We are the human problem to the human problem. And we are the victims all at the same time. What's the solution? It's by looking to a God that created the universe, who enters into the human condition and rescues broken, sinful human people who without him are destined to be burned up by the consuming fire of God because he doesn't just simply stand aloof watching us all kill ourselves and destroy his good creation in the process. He enters into our situation, our impossible predicament, and he rescues us by a work of his spirit in our hearts. If we'll turn to him, if we'll turn away from trying to rescue ourselves, if we'll stop, stop our sinning and trust him who rescues us, who's able to do so. We start that way and we finish that way. This is our story. Let's talk about Caleb and Joshua for a second. Caleb, Joshua, and the children. Now, it would seem that they, they did something right, or they had figured out something because they were the, they were the exceptions. Even Moses, of, of his own confession, says, I'm, I'm not even getting in. Now, if you recall, this is a whole other story, but there was a moment where Moses lost his temper, and he disobeyed God, and it was a really big deal. And he says, right, Moses, so sorry, but you're, you're, you're not going in. It's a whole other story. But Joshua and Caleb and the children, he said, you'll, you'll inherit the land. They end up having to wait 40 years, but God says, just wait. After this generation who has rebelled and refused to trust me and to, to go into the promised land, after they've passed, I'm going to use you to bring my people into this place, this land. Um, Caleb... It says that he, and this is verse 36, he was the one who wholly followed God. Not H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-Y. He wholly, wholeheartedly, with all of his being, trusted God and followed the Lord. It says in Numbers 14, verse 24, that because Caleb had a, quote-unquote, different spirit and followed God fully, that he would enter the promised land. There was something different about Caleb. He was one of the 12 who went to, to spy out the land to see what's going on. Let's, let's, let's see if it's really as good as we've been told and let's make a plan, let's form a strategy. And he goes in and he sees exactly what the other 12 saw, the other 11 saw, but he comes back and says, yep, Nephilim, they're there. Yep, sure enough, fortified cities up to the heavens, saw it with my own eyes, but the fruit, can I tell you about the fruit? It's like grapes as big as melons. I mean, it is better than what you could have possibly have imagined. The giants, yeah, they're there, but our God, 
don't forget, people, the God who delivered us out of an impossible situation is more than capable and faithful enough to, to lead us into his promise. Joshua, same thing. Um, although Joshua is such an interesting case. It says that Joshua, um, he was the young man, if you recall, I mentioned this last week, who when Moses went to the tent to meet with God, uh, Joshua was his young assistant, and, and he would go with Moses, and when Moses would finally leave, it said Joshua would remain in the tent, as if he just couldn't get enough of God's presence. We're told in Numbers 13 that Joshua, you know his name was originally not Joshua? You ever, you ever catch this? You ever, have, as you've been like meditating on the book of Numbers? Have you ever noticed this? This is Numbers, um, I don't have the verse here, but Joshua's name originally was Hosea, which means salvation. Moses changed Hosea's name to Joshua, which means God saves. Moses knew that no matter how strong, mighty, courageous, bold, equipped, smart, capable you might be or think you might be, that ultimately where God is taking his people will require God himself to save. Hosea became Joshua because it wasn't just a matter of conquering giants. It was a matter of trusting, believing, remembering that it's God himself who saves his people. He is the one greater than anyone else in this world. And then, of course, the children said, anyone under the age of 24, don't ask me why 24, it seems relatively arbitrary, but he said, anyone under the age of 24, the, the youngsters, they'll go in. They'll be the ones to eventually trust me and cross over into this land that God had promised them. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18 when he says, unless you turn to become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because children know they're incapable. I mean, yeah, occasionally my little boy like becomes convinced that he's Spider-Man. But when push comes to shove, he, know, he knows that he, he, can, he can't even, I was going to say he can't even wipe himself. He's getting better. <laughs> he can't do anything for himself. He's just a kid. He's just a kid. And he knows that his strength comes from mama and papa. And the kids realize that God is like, he's like that father who keeps, picks up and carries his child. Children know that intuitively, um, at least as long as their innocence is intact and eventually realize this is a world that teaches us, you better grow up, you better get strong, you better become capable, you be independent if you want to survive in this world, and the gospel is contrary to that. The message of the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that, yeah, this world is it's, it's a big, strong, scary, wonderful world full of giants but we are not the hero of our own stories. We are to think of ourselves as children and learn to trust God, our creator, as a good, strong, faithful father. 
We read in verses 29 and 30, Moses reminded God's people, he says, do not be afraid, do not be in dread or afraid of them, the giants. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. So question, how do we do that? How does that work? Think, maybe you're facing a, a giant right now in your life. It could be money, it could be health, it could be your marriage, it could be you, you being single, it could be, I mean, we've all got our giants. And depending upon how this year is going for you so far, you might be like, all I got is a bunch of dead giants in my wake. Like, I am strong in the power of his might. Praise the Lord, awesome. A few of us might still be facing a few giants in life. And yet the, the Bible says, trust God. Just stand firm, wait, be still, know that he's God, and he is the one who fights for us. Doesn't that sound fantastic? How does that work? Like, how does that actually happen when, when, when you're facing a giant, quote-unquote giant, in real time? How do we stand our ground? The New Testament says, and exhorting believers, it says, you've not yet resisted the temptation to sin unto the point of death. The Bible exhorts us to stand our ground, to resist the temptation to fear, the temptation to, to take matters into our own hands, as it were, to control, to become our own gods, to resist that temptation even unto the point of death. That's scary. How does one stand their ground when it feels like you're going to die? And very few of us, I think, ever actually face that until you are literally about to die. Of course, we all will face that for sure. How do we do this? How do we face giants like Caleb, Joshua, or the children taking our stand without fear, overcoming impossible odds that stand between us and God's promises? Three things. Strength to slay giants. Number one, it isn't achieved by becoming more personally capable or independent, but rather by embracing your utter dependence upon God. You can go to the next slide, please. Personal development versus dependence upon God. In God's economy, spiritual power always proceeds not from self-discovery or self-improvement, not that those are bad things per se, but spiritual power proceeds from relational proximity. If you want to experience God's power in your life, get close to him. Learn to walk in intimacy with God. Because in God's economy, spiritual power always proceeds from relational proximity. That is to say, God's power cannot be co-opted by simply mastering religious or spiritual rote. Rather, God's power is experienced through attachment or relationship with him. This is what psychologists in attachment theory refer to as the dependency paradox, or the dependency, uh, the paradox of dependency. In, like I mentioned a, a, a second ago, we, we grow up in a world that teaches us that we're to become dependent, or independent, sorry. That part of growing up, becoming an adult, becoming strong, is that you want to achieve independence. And even your relationships, you don't become enmeshed 
But be independent in all ways, and that's, that's where maturity and strength lies. Only in the Bible, it's, it seems the other way around, that strength is achieved or is experienced not in our independence, but by embracing our utter dependence upon God for everything. That is the dependency paradox. We find freedom and strength, not in autonomy, but by coming under the covering, the strength, the sovereignty of our Heavenly Father. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 8. This is what uh, I love what, you'll actually find this quote in your fasting booklet. Uh, Corrie ten Boom, the the Dutch uh, World War II survivor, or rather hero, she said, never be afraid of, never be afraid to entrust the unknown in the hands of a God that's known. Never be afraid to face the unknown to a God that is known. The closer we get to God, the more we embrace the fact that he is the greater one and I am just his child. That he has given me gifts, that he's given me responsibility. He's even called me to obey him. And, and do certain things. But at the end of the day, when I look back, I should constantly be humbled and reminded that it's not by my might. It's not because of my power. It's not because I finally learned everything that I needed to learn. And I read all of the books that were on my list. But because of who God is, what he's like, because of his faithfulness, his power. And when I get to know that God, all of a sudden, the unknown, the scary things, the giants, the impossible circumstances that are facing me down are put into perspective because I know my God. I know his capability. I know his power. I know how faithful he's been and always will be. How do you know that you're walking close to God? How do you know that you are, in fact, being intimate with Jesus. Like how, how can you discern that? Because it's more than just a feeling, to be sure. How can you discern your closeness to Jesus? Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will obey me. You want some sort of objective litmus test for like how close you are to God? Look at the commandments of Jesus and how he told us to live, and then look at your life. Okay. If you're sinning, or rather not trusting Jesus enough to live the way that he has commanded us to live, in your relationships, in, 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 your, uh, in your sex life, in your money, in your politics, in, in the world, and all of these things, because he's quite explicit in a lot of these areas. But if you're choosing to, I don't know, find ways to work around his commandments and then justify why all that's okay and God actually understands because he knows your heart, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not trying to be harsh, but let's, let's just, can we be at least real? If that's what you're doing, I think, I think we've all probably done that, tried, then you're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. You're not walking closely to God if you're not obeying him, if you're not doing his commands, because if you trust him naturally, 
you will live your life according to his ways, his commandments. Oh, which by the way, um, this is why we're fasting. Just, just a couple quick words on this. We do it every year, at the beginning of the year, as a church family. In fact, we're part of a larger Grace City here in Portland and Corvallis and Eugene. We're this little like church family. We're part of an even larger family of churches called Every Nation. You could kind of call it our denomination. It's, it's like one of these non-denominational denominations. Um, it's all very confusing these days. But we're part of this family of churches called Every Nation. And so we're going to fast and we're going to seek the face of God together. Um, Christians all over the world. It's a pretty cool thing. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? To get closer to Jesus. You deny yourself something uh, physically in this case. It's like a very, very practical means to achieving uh, relational ends. We fast so that we can get closer to God. We deny ourselves something so that we can embrace more of him. And that's how, it's one of the ways, one of the very practical ways we get closer to our God. Two more things. Number two, um, how do we experience the strength to slay giants? Number two, it isn't achieved by taming God with our intellect, but by worshiping the Lord with fear and trembling. It's not achieved by intellectual prowess, but rather by coming to God and seeing him, understanding who he is, and fearing him, trembling in his presence. Because the closer you get to God, the more you realize he's a good God. He's unfathomably good, and he is not a tame lion. He's ferocious. There's a reason why when we're facing giants, we want to stand back and be like, you know, I need to introduce you to Papa. Mr. Giant, Mr. Nephilim, I know a God who created the entire universe, who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is terrifying, and he's my dad. Because in Christ, he rescued me, he adopted me, he died for my sins, so because of who he is, I'm with him. And let me tell you something, you get into the presence of God, the most natural, logical emotion that any sane person should feel is an overwhelming fear. Because he is an awesome, powerful, terrifying God who can slay giants. You want me to keep going? Numbers 14, it says, Caleb and Joshua said to the people, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. We don't fear giants. We fear our God because he is awesome, he is powerful, he is good, but he is not a tame lion. He slays giants. I love what Psalms chapter 2, verses 10 and 12 says. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. You want to have the courage to stand in the face of giants knowing that your God fights for you? 
My friends, you must have a big view of a God who is powerful. He's not the kind of God you, you want to be on the wrong side of. Let me put it that way. Number three, strength to slay giants isn't achieved by simply feeling full of faith, but rather by cultivating a soft, trusting heart towards God. Verse 27, we read this, they murmured in their tents. The spies came back, they said, we saw giants. What did they do? They went to their tents and they began to murmur to themselves. They said, because the Lord hates us, he's done this to us. By the way, they've said this like so many times, you, you lose track along the way. Because, oh, you know, God, he, he drug us out here just to see us die. And they, they begin to murmur to themselves. Their response was the product of a cultivation. This is not a fight or flight scenario. This isn't like all of a sudden they see the giants and they freak out. This is something that they've been cultivating over about a year and a half now is how long we've been on the road. And over and over and over again, every time they're faced with something that feels impossible, they start to complain. They start to grumble. They start to murmur. They begin to reinforce their own thinking that, yeah, God does hate us. God isn't capable. God is against me. And they're cultivating something in their hearts. Uh, Most of us have probably heard this by now, but uh, more and more people who are studying the brain, the way we work and make decisions, have all concluded that by and large, the way we live and the decisions we make are much more the product of, of certain feelings going on inside versus like, I've thought this out. And, and this is the most logical way to act, think, live, or believe. It's just not the way humans work. We, we rub off on each other. We, we listen to messages. We take in stories we process, we cultivate, and over time we begin to see the world a certain way. We see ourselves a certain way. We make decisions accordingly. And so the way we learn to stand and trust God who fights for us isn't by just making a decision in the moment. It's by, well, there is that, but we're able to make that decision because we've cultivated a faith in our hearts, a softness towards God, a trust to stand when the moment comes. Let me read this, and we're actually going to close. This is Hebrews chapter 3. As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. Therefore, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. It's so important that we find opportunities to encourage one another, that we can remain confident when the day of testing comes. And a day will come where every one of us will stand before our maker. And if our confidence is in anyone or anything other than God himself, 
and what he's done for us in Jesus, we'll find ourselves in a very bad way. But as we continue to gather, as we continue to remind one another, and not like, you know, this isn't like a guilt trip kind of thing. And I I spoke about fear and trembling, and yes, that's very, very important, but at the end of the day, I know who I am in Christ. I know that before Jesus rescued me, I was, I was, I was headed at a, bre- a neck break speed for hell. I have told my story many times. Almost died, got a big car wreck, went flying off the side of the freeway, walked home, terrified to call the cops because I'd been drinking, and I thought, I almost died, I almost died. If I had died tonight, I would be in hell. And scared, scared me to death, just the idea, like grappling with that. And if you've never almost died, maybe you don't know what that feels like. And then about a year later, I made a decision, like enough is enough. I can't save myself. Not now, not in eternity. And I put my faith in Jesus. And since then, I've been fighting the good fight. It's been 18, almost 19 years now. And some of you, you have the same story. And you've been fighting and fighting and fighting. And occasionally, a giant will cross your path. And you've been traveling, and sometimes you, you finally arrive where you, you've been trying to get to, and who's waiting for you? A giant, and wants to just slay you down. And in that moment, will you have the faith to stand? Will you remember that the God we serve is a mighty God who is faithful and able to fight for us, even when we do face death? And that's the final enemy that every one of us will face, face. And so let's encourage one another. The book of Hebrews says explicitly, don't stop gathering together, but keep it going. Keep coming together so that you can encourage one another. I mean, we go out of this place and we get on YouTube, love YouTube, we get on our podcast, we read it, all this stuff, and there's, there's just, we're bombarded. We're bombarded with a message like, well, you know, it's like there's some other ideas and opinions. Look, I've re- I, I'm fully aware of the other ideas and religious philosophies and all these things. I would say that go explore all of that. Study, learn, be open. But don't think for one second that something isn't being cultivated on the inside of you. Get back together, get in your small group, get to an ecclesia, come to church, worship. Get a good Christian book recommendation. Listen to, develop a diet of faith, of upbuilding, so that when the giant does stand before you, you can remember, no, I know who my God is. I know who I am. I know who he calls me. I will stand, and I will fight, and I will fight for my brothers and sisters. I will not back down even unto death, because my king has conquered death. He died, was buried, and rose again. He is the king. He is above. He is the head. He is the greater one. And he lives inside of me, inside of you, if you are a follower of Jesus today. Can we stand together, please?